Good morning, church. My name is Jonathan, and I'll be reading the Bible for us this morning. And the reading is taken from Exodus chapter 33, verse 12, to chapter 34, verse 7. Uh, please follow along in your own Bible, but don't look at the screen behind me. <laughs> Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I'll give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come out on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on Mount Top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain, not even the fog and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first one and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Good morning, friends. My name is Scott. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Adelaide. Really good to be with you this morning. I've got a question to start off today. Does anyone know why our city is called Adelaide? Who knows? Why are we called Adelaide? That's right, yes. We're named after Queen Adelaide. She was the wife of King William IV. He was a king in the 1930s. And our city was uh, named in 1936. And so we were named Adelaide in honour of the Queen. Here's a more tricky question. Does anyone know why Paraka is called Paraka? I didn't think so. Uh, 
Very close, Julie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Julie's on the right path here. <clears throat> so apparently this suburb used to be called Dry Creek um, after Dry Creek, which runs through us. But it was renamed in 1916 to be called Paraka. And here's the story as best as I can figure it out. So the indigenous Australians who lived here are called the Ghana people. And the white fellas at the time didn't properly understand uh, the Ghana language. But they thought, they, th they thought that Paraka was the Ghana word for dry, as in dry creek. And so they called it Paraka. But actually, that's not right. Paraka is not the Ghana word for dry. It's not the Ghana word for creek. Um, as best as we can tell, it's probably an indigenous, na indi indigenous name for a tree that's in New South Wales, so it's not even here. So they kind of messed that one up a little bit. But yes, it was supposedly something to do with Dry Creek, yes. Sometimes names have great meaning and sometimes they don't. <laughs> what about God, though? Did you know, friends, God has a name? And do you know what his name means? Uh, it's Christmas time at the moment where we celebrate Jesus being born. We're leading up to that. Uh, Jesus being born is the time that God comes to be with us. And so in the lead up to Christmas, we're, we're going to a few different parts of the Old Testament to look at other times where God and people met. Now, these are amazing encounters. And today we're focusing in on, on Moses, when Moses met God. And actually, Moses met God tw twice. Um, at one of those times, God told Moses his name. Then later, in the part that Jonathan just read out for us, God told Moses what his name means. And when we see this and when we capture this, when we understand this, it ought to cause us to treasure our God more and more deeply. Before we get into it, though, a little bit of background. We're in Exodus today. Uh, Exodus is the part of the Bible that recounts the early stages of Israel's history, the nation Israel. Uh, and it's really, <clears throat> pardon me, all about God coming to live with his people. So Exodus begins with the nation Israel in trouble. They're in Egypt. They've been enslaved. They're oppressed there by the Egyptians. But then God raises up Moses. Moses leads the people out of, uh, out of Egypt. That's where you get things like the Ten Plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. But God's purpose in doing this is actually to take, the, take Israel to their own land, but not just to take them to their own land, to, to live with them there too. This is what Exodus 29, verse 45 and 46 says. God's speaking and says, Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They'll know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt, so that I might dwell among them. Why, why does God bring Israel out of Egypt? It's so he can live with them. But here's the thing. Living with God is going to change things. It must change things. Uh, let me tell you about a time. Early, earlier this year, in fact, my brother and his girlfriend came to live with my parents for a few months. And, and they got along quite well, but still, things had to change in the household. And they specifically had to change in the household because my brother's girlfriend had a pet snake. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I was actually laughing because I thought, <laughs> my parents have to live with a pet snake now. Um, I thought this would change things for mum and dad, that they would steer clear of that part of the house wherever the snake was kept. But in fact, it changed things for my brother and his partner because she ended up selling the snake before 
they moved in with mum and dad. So that was a bit of a letdown, wasn't it? <laughs> um, living with someone has got to change things, right? And it's no different for Israel when God comes to live with them. God, God wants them to change so they can live with him. And so God takes the, God's taken these people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, and he brings them to a place called Mount Sinai. Now, I'll show you a picture roughly of where it is on the screen there, but you can just imagine that. It, it's quite in a desert place, a wilderness, but it's here, a great big mountain. Moses goes up, and God gives Israel the Ten Commandments. I'm sure you've heard of them before. The Ten Commandments are, are telling this nation how to live with God amongst them. Here's the problem. Israel isn't up to it. They're not up to living with God. So Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to hear from God, but before he can make his way down, Israel have already messed things up. They've given up on Moses. They've made a a golden calf and started worshipping it as if it was God. And God sees this and he says, well, that's it. I'm going to destroy this people now. So Moses prays to him and he intercedes for the people and God relents. He says, okay, I'm not going to destroy them, but I'm not going to live with them either. They can go to their land, but they can go without me. And now we're up to the part that Jonathan read out for us. And we saw there at the start, Moses makes another request of God. Moses again prays to God and he says, God, Remember that this is your nation, your people. You've made promises. You've called us your own. So, so please live with us. You can see his plea in verse 13 of chapter 33. Remember that this nation is your people. <clears throat> and look at verse 14, how God responds. Verse 14, the Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Despite their past, despite making a mess of things, God promises now he will live with his people. He'll dwell with them. He'll go with them. And then Moses makes another request to God as well. It's like he really wants to seal the deal with God. And so he asks him, Now show me your glory. That's the request Moses really makes. God, let me see your glory. And God's response is, it's kind of strange. Look at verse 19. Moses has asked, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Moses Moses asks God, God, show me your glory. And God says, Sure, I'll proclaim my name to you. Uh, do you, do you that doesn't sound quite right, does it? Did, did God not properly hear what Moses asked him? Or is this God just fobbing off Moses? Oh, you want to see my glory, do you? Well, here's second prize. Why don't I tell you my name? What's going on here? It doesn't seem to, to, to fit. Well, let me tell you about my name. My full name is Scott Alexander Westwood. Uh, Scott means uh, someone who comes from Scotland. Alexander, this is a good one. Alexander means defender of the people. And uh, yeah, it sounds nice, doesn't it? Westwood means, well, we just lived on the western side of all those trees. So put my name together. Put my name together. 
and I am the defender of the Scottish people as long as they don't live on the eastern side of the forest. (laughs) Basically, my name has no relation to who I am. Compare that to my daughter's name. Uh, We chose her name intentionally. You probably know her as Eva. Her full name is Evangeline Lucy Westwood. Uh, Evangeline means gospel and Lucy means light. And we gave her that name partly because we thought it sounded nice, but, but also because that's what we want for her. We want her to be a gospel light in the world. Though who knows if she ever will be. Giving her that name can't make it happen. It's only our hope for her. God's name is different. It's not like my name, which has no relation to me. It's not like my daughter's name, which is only what we hope for her. God's name tells us what he's like. See, Moses says to God, show me your glory. God replies, I'll proclaim my name to you because God's name reveals his glory. God's name shows us who he is in all his glory. So let's look at that. Let's take a look at that name for a moment. Jonathan read, Moses went back up Mount Sinai, and when he's there, God proclaims his name to Moses. Verse 6, and he, that's God, God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents, the third and fourth generation. That's a mouthful as a name, isn't it? Uh, let's, Let's slow down and just take a closer look at what God's name means. So I'm just going to work through those verses bit by bit. So firstly, God starts off by saying, The Lord, the Lord. Now, I said earlier that Moses had met God once before this in Exodus chapter 3. God met Moses. This is the time you might remember the story of the burning bush where God appears to Moses. And back then, Moses asked God what his name was, what he should, who, who, who he should tell the Israelites was, was sending him. And God replied with his name. He said, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Uh, Now, from that Hebrew word, the Hebrew word I am, this is spoken originally in Hebrew, from the Hebrew word I am, we get four Hebrew letters. And when you sound them out, it probably sounds something like Yahweh. And in our Bibles, it's translated the Lord. You can see it there, but particularly if you've got your Bible open, it's the Lord. and, And Lord is written all in capital letters. That's God's special name so see by the time we're reading exodus 34 moses already knows that god's name is yahweh the lord and now in exodus 34 we see god goes on to tell him what the name means so he says the lord the lord the compassionate and gracious god when you think about god what do you expect him to be like a lot of people in our world have a pretty negative view of God. But here God tells us what he's like. 
He's not harsh. He's not overbearing. He's compassionate and gracious. Speaks to our God being merciful, kind-hearted, benevolent. He's, he's, he's tender in his attitude toward us. It goes on. He's also slow to anger. You know, anger in itself is not a bad thing. Uh, when evil is done, it, it's right to be angry about it. But in my case, m- m- my anger tends to flare up in a moment and I can lash out. And even that's not always when, when something evil has happened, it, but it can simply be because my selfish desires haven't always been met. God is not like this. He is angry at evil. But he's slow to anger, not lashing out. He's, 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 he's measured and appropriate in his anger. And he's also abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, think about that for a moment. Um, what do you abound in? What do you have lots of? Or what, what is it that you want to have lots of? God says that he abounds in love and faithfulness. This is what he has lots of. His is a faithful love. He will never stop being like this. You know when you, when you go to the supermarket and you pick up a trolley, and always the wheels just aren't quite right, like it keeps going towards one way? You know, you know that you've had that experience, sure. They never go straight, always leans to one side. And that's what God is like, except he, he keeps leaning towards faithfully loving. That's his bent. That's his character. In fact, it says there, doesn't it? He maintains love to thousands. That is, <clears throat> God maintains love to a thousand generations. This is, this is what God said back in Exodus chapter 20. It says that, that he shows love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. And he's just telling us the, the extent of God's love, right? It keeps going on and on and on and on, which has big implications for the nation of Israel back then. Like, it means if they're going to honor him, if they're going to keep, keep his commandments, think that God will live with them. He'll keep living with them. They'll be in the promised land for a thousand generations. We're talking 30,000 years. Like That is a great promise of God to his people. And God is also the one who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And isn't that what we just saw him do? That's what he's done. Israel made this great golden calf to worship as if it were God. And what did God do? He didn't destroy them. He forgave their wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Because God's not the traffic cop. You know, out there hiding behind the bushes with his speed gun, just waiting for you to do the wrong thing so he can come and punish you. That's not God at all. He is forgiving. Friends, let me say that again. God is forgiving of you. All of us have a past that we're ashamed of, things we've done. God stands ready 
to forgive our wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. See, our God is a God of justice too. He won't let evil keep going on unchecked. He punishes it. That is the Lord, friends. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. This is what his name means. This is, this is who he is. It's his, it's his character. And when you see it, it's glorious. It's full of his glory. Friends, this is a part of the Bible that we ought to keep coming back and reflecting on and pondering on, getting to know our God more and more deeply. When we see how God like this, doesn't it just make you love who our God is? The Lord, the Lord. But it also leaves us, actually, with a dilemma. Or, or more rightly, it leaves God with a dilemma. Okay, let me, let me, let me try and explain this. Um, God says he's loving and he's faithful, but he's also our judge. So knowing that we've done wrong in the past, will God be compassionate and forgiving toward us? Or will he punish us? Do you see, do you see that problem there? What will God be like? You know, maybe we can think, well, well, surely, you know, God is supposed to forgive. Now, that's his job, so he'll do it, won't he? But, but, but God's also supposed to care about evil and, and should punish it. And, and it's a good thing when he does this, right? So, do you see the dilemma God's in here? Uh, uh, go along with me here for a moment. I want you to think of someone who's who's close to you. Uh, envisage this person in your head. Don't have to tell anyone else who it is, but, but someone who's close to you, a friend or a family member, whoever it is, you, you got their face in your head right now? Okay, now, imagine for a moment <clears throat> that someone murders this person who's close to you. And imagine the police know who did it. Imagine there's loads of evidence against them, right? They're guilty and everyone knows it. And let's imagine now we're at the court case. It's the end of the court case. The judge is about to sit down and pronounce the judgment. The judge sits down and they say, well, look, they talk to the criminal. Look, we all know you're guilty, but I'm a compassionate and loving God. So I've decided to let you go free. Let's all just forgive and forget and move along with life, shall we? Imagine in that moment how you would feel. You'd be outraged, right? This, what's, this is injustice. God is not a judge like that. He punishes the guilty, but how can he do that and also be the forgiving, loving, merciful, compassionate God? You see our problem here? Here's the good news, friends. God has found a way to do both, to be both. And this all came down to one event, one moment in history. 
See, 1,500 years after God spoke to Moses, Jesus came along. At Christmas time, we remember Jesus was born, but he wasn't just born. He grew up and he lived a life. Well, in fact, he lived till he was about 33 until he was executed. You see, Jesus had been a thorn in the side for those who had power. So much so did he annoy them and frustrate them that they wanted to get rid of him, and eventually they got their way. Jesus was crucified. He was stripped naked. They put nails in his hands and his feet. And he was left to die a slow and agonizing death. And yet, that was the moment, that was the event that all of Jesus' life had been leading up to. All of Jesus' life had been looking forward to when that would happen. Uh, the Gospel of John is part of the Bible. It's, it's a biography written about Jesus' life, written by a guy called John. And, and John is, is talking about this time when Jesus is crucified. And what do you think John calls that? When Jesus is crucified, what does John call it? Is that Jesus' moment of shame? Not according to John. Is it Jesus' moment of pain? That, that would be fitting because it was agonizing. But no. John calls it Jesus' moment of glory. The crucifixion, the cross, is Jesus' moment of glory. And you think, What? He's being crucified. How can that be a moment of glory? But remember here, friends, God's glory is seen in his name. And what does his name tell us about him? Well, that he is the God of love and faithfulness and mercy and forgiveness. And he's also the God of justice and truth, the one who punishes evil. And that's exactly what we see at the cross. God justly punishing sin. Wickedness is being punished in the person of Jesus And what's the effect of that? That God can now extend forgiveness to us. Jesus has taken the punishment I deserve, and that means I can be forgiven. God's justice is satisfied, and God's mercy is satisfied. At the cross, and and primarily at the cross, we see God in all. All of his glory. I want to take a little quick aside now, friends, and say, this is why it's important we believe in the Trinity. Uh, We believe there's one God. This is one of the foundational things that Christians have believed. One God, one divine being, but we know him as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father is not the Son, and the Spirit is not the Father. There's not three gods there, but there's one God in three persons. And often I think we can, we can wonder, you know, is this something that, that, that theologians can just think about off in their ivory towers? But no, it's actually important for all of us, because it has big implications. Think about this for a moment. If Jesus is not God, then who is getting punished on the cross? Well, it's just some innocent bystander, isn't it? God's got a problem with people, but poor old Jesus somehow gets drawn in the middle of this. He cops the blame, and, well, that just seems entirely unjust, doesn't it? Uh, Before I was married to people, I lived in a few different places, and one of them had a um, punching bag hung up in the backyard. I thought this was great, because when I had a bad day at work... 
or when I'd come home and, and none of the other housemates had, had done their chores that they were supposed to do, they said they'd do, I could take it out on the punching bag. All the frustration. Boom, 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 boom. And, and that's better, actually, because then I don't have to take it out on the real people, right? Um, is that all Jesus is? Just some cosmic punching bag there for God to dish out all his punishment so that the rest of us can go free? Is that what's going on here? But no, it's not, is it? Because we believe in the Trinity. Jesus is God. Jesus is the God we have sinned against. He is the offended party. And so when the Son goes to the cross, when Jesus goes to the cross and the Father punishes him for our sin, it is not the ultimate injustice. It's the triune God bearing the punishment in himself to win forgiveness for us, his people. Do you see why the Trinity is so important for what we believe? God is just. He punishes wrong and evil. And God is merciful. He forgives our wrong. And friends, this is the very thing that God told Moses he was like. This is the very character of God that was revealed all those years ago to Moses. The Lord, the Lord. The compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is the Lord our God. And so now to our response. Having heard this, what do we do? Well, perhaps you're here and you're not really on board with all the God stuff. Perhaps you're here and you thought you were on board with God, but you're kind of realizing that You've never actually asked God for forgiveness. You've more been approaching God as if he was going to be someone who judges you, but you've never asked him for forgiveness. If either of these are you, can I say, today you've heard the great problem we have with God, our wrongs, his punishment, but you've also heard God's great solution, forgiveness instead of punishment. What are you going to do with this? If you are in, in that situation, I'd just love to chat to you more about this. Why not grab me afterwards? But then there's the rest of us here. We who've been forgiven by God, who have tasted God's character, who know his justice when we look at Jesus, who know his forgiveness in our lives. What about us? Today, friends, I... I hope you've been reminded of these, these things we take for granted sometimes. What God has done to rescue, of the cost that Jesus has paid for your forgiveness. So my question to you, friends, is, are you appreciating your God? Are you counting the blessings that he has poured out on you through Jesus? Are you learning to regularly, constantly be thankful to him for what he has done for you?
Have you grown casual about your Christian faith? Or is it your ongoing desire to know your God more deeply and be in wonder at who he is in all his glory and be in wonder at the benefits he pours out on your life? Friends, let these truths about God be on your hearts, in your minds, so that we might be the kind of people who just live in response, who offer our lives to our God as a response of praise and thanksgiving to him. Let me pray that we would. Our Lord, our Lord, you are compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. You maintain your love to thousands and forgive wickedness, rebellion and sin. You do not leave the guilty unpunished. And so we praise you for this, our God. We praise you and we ask that we would be those who appreciate you and all your goodness. Please fill us not just with a knowledge of these truths, but with hearts of praise because of them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.